out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hello again to all you podcast enthusiasts, and welcome to Unveiling Jesus Christ, and our podcast today on Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. I'm John Cassinet. I'll be your host for this session, as always. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the white stone that is described in Revelation 2.17, and if you're following along with the content in my book, you'll find this content at section 23 in much more limited detail than what I'm going to be describing here today. Now, by way of introduction, last week we also discussed the content in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, specifically with regard to the topic of hidden manna that is mentioned in the verse. And today we're going to be talking about how overcomers are promised a white stone in the same verse. So let's look at the whole verse together, and then I'm going to start breaking it down to our discussion about the white stone specifically. So this verse says in its entirety, quote, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. Close quote. The white stone in this verse is an allusion to the use of white stones in the Roman Empire at the time that John wrote his letter to the seven churches in 96 AD. And this particular letter was specifically written to the saints in Pergamos. And the white stone is called in the Greek language a tessera, which is a pebble or small sea-worn stone. So these, the tessera could be a naturally formed and colored stone or sometimes it's made of ivory or other substances. And they oftentimes had words or symbols engraved on the faces of the tessera. And so that we find uh, is something that John uses in his description in Revelation 2.17, where it describes that on this particular white stone, it also had a new name written. So next week, we're going to be talking about the new name and its meaning. But uh, just so you know that that kind of imagery was commonplace in the Roman Empire. And in fact, by uh, no later than 200 BC, these types of stones uh, were used in Greek mosaic art. And you have to be careful not to confuse that with the Tesseract in Thor and in other Marvel action movies. And so you're probably thinking, Tesseract, well, is that the same as a Tesseract? <laughs> and the answer is no, because in the Marvel action movies, the Tesseract was a crystalline cube, as you'll recall, that contained one of six infinity stones with unlimited energy. Now, this was used by ancient civilizations until it eventually fell into the hands of the Asgardians, and it was kept inside Odin's vault, but eventually brought to Earth. Now, the sad story is that in 1942, it was obtained by Johann Schmidt, who was the leader of Hydra. <laughs> 
<laughs> he was using the Tesseract to uh, create advanced and advanced weaponry in World War II, but fortunately, he was defeated by Captain America in 1945, and since then, uh, you know, the uh, Avengers have been doing the best they can to keep the, uh, the crystalline cube known as the Tesseract out of the hands of the bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, uh, don't confuse Tessera with Tesseract. Uh, you know, you, you can thank me later for making the distinction so no one's confused here. But at any rate, getting back to uh, ancient Rome, uh, the Tessera, as I've been referring to it as part of the uh, account here for the Book of Revelation, was uh, a badge of honor and victory. Uh, and that's one of its uses. It was given to the uh, victors in Olympic competition and so it carried with it this idea of honor and victory but it was also uh, a white stone in particular which we were referring to as the tessera was given to people acquitted of a crime so if you're uh, up for trial um, because you did something wrong uh, the way that you're going to find out is they're going to give you a white stone which would be a sign or symbol of absolution and white of course being the fortunate color of purity and goodness so on and so forth but on the other hand if you were convicted of the crime, you would receive a black stone that would be your way of knowing, oh boy, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> You're going to be condemned. Um, and so white was the uh, symbol of victory and absolution, black you're in big trouble. Uh, so the stone of this type, these white stones, uh, were also used in elections. And so before we had the invention of the uh, paper ballots where people could write down who you're voting for, you know, you write in candidates or whatever, um, they would use stones, uh, white stones and black, to uh, cast their vote. And you would throw them into an urn. Eventually they would pull them out and count. And uh, so if it was a proposition, oh, the proposition had so many white stones and so many black stones and uh, it passed or didn't pass according to the count. Um, and uh, it would be used for uh, uh, candidates for office as well. And so you could inscribe the name of the candidates and uh, throw your uh, stones into the urn to uh, decide who your uh, mayor was going to be, things like that. Now, it was also, there was something else uh, that was used um, that is similar um, and uh, was for purposes of hospitality. And so if you had a stone of hospitality, it essentially was like this carte blanche that entitled the person or the holder of this stone to ask for and receive whatever he might want. And so uh, it, it's almost like a uh, credit card. <laughs> except you don't have to pay every month. Um, at any rate, so um, as I mentioned before, um, on these stones there were various writings depending on the uh, purpose for which the stone was being used. But the important point before we get into the name itself next week is to recognize that the name is being inscribed on what is essentially an imperishable material. Um, and this is a symbol of its enduring quality, it's eternal. And so uh, when we think of the stone, 
and a name being written on the stone, you have to think in terms of eternal kinds of things as the thing that's being symbolized here. And so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more as we talk about the meaning of the name, but uh, you just need to understand for now that it's connected to the concept of receiving exaltation in the celestial kingdom or what we would call eternal life. And so the fact that it's written, this name is written on an imperishable stone conveys that concept or that idea. Now, Christian scholars have debated the meaning of the white stone in Revelation 2.17 with differing impressions and uh, interpretations, but uh, within the church, uh, we have, uh, fortunately, the Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verses 9 through 10, which essentially settles the debate. And that verse says, quote, This earth, in its sanctified and immortal state, will be made like unto crystal, and will be a Urim and Thummim to the inhabitants who dwell thereon, whereby all things pertaining to an inferior kingdom, or all kingdoms of a lower order, will be manifest to those who dwell on it, and this earth will be Christ. Then the white stone mentioned in Revelation 2.17 will become a Urim and Thummim to each individual who receives one, whereby things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms will be made known. Close quote. I read both verses 9 and 10 in section 130 because it describes this earth as a Urim and Thummim and separately then describes the white stone in Revelation 2.17 as a Urim and Thummim. The earth is something that in its function as a Urim and Thummim can be looked into to see kingdoms that are inferior to the celestial kingdom or this celestial earth on which uh, people who live celestial law will be able to dwell. Separate from that, you have the white stone that some people will be given that is also a Urim and Thummim. And those who receive the stone then can see things pertaining to higher orders of kingdoms. And I know you're asking yourself or sitting there thinking, oh, wait a minute. I thought the celestial kingdom was the highest kingdom of God. So you're telling me now if I get to the celestial kingdom and I get this stone, that I will have the ability to see kingdoms of an even higher order? And the answer is yes and no. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to come back to that. We'll circle back to what the meaning of this is, but I want us to talk more generally as we begin this discussion about what this Urim and Thummim is that is referred to in uh, the Doctrine and Covenants verses that I've just read. So uh, Urim and Thummim are Hebrew words that mean lights and perfections. It is an allusion to um, the Urim and Thummim that was part of the breastplate of the high priest worn in ancient Israel. Now, some people think that the Urim and Thummim was the diamond stone in the breastplate, but I, I tend to think that that's not a correct interpretation for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Urim and Thummim consisted of more than one stone. There was at least two stones involved. In, in reality, it was, it was two stones. And uh, a diamond, of course, was only one of 12 in the breastplate of the high priest. And on the 12 stones 
in the breastplate was inscribed the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. So each stone had a tribal name inscribed in the stone. And I kind of come back to what I mentioned a moment ago about how if you have your name inscribed in something that is permanent and enduring like a stone, uh, it has the connotation of eternal life and Israel as an eternal people. And so essentially, the other concept that we need to kind of uh, recognize is that uh, as exalted saints enter the celestial kingdom, uh, they become like the high priest who possessed a Urim and Thummim in his breastplate or as part of his breastplate. And so too, we, as we enter into the celestial kingdom, can become like a high priest ourselves so that we, in a sense, receive our own Urim and Thummim when we enter into the celestial kingdom. Now, you can kind of compare the Urim and Thummim that we're talking about here with what we find in Ether 3.16, where the Lord touched the stones with his fingers so that the they would glow and uh, the Jaredites wouldn't have to sail across the uh, the deep waters, the Eriantum, in uh, total darkness. And uh, so essentially God gave his light or glory to those stones. And uh, we can kind of think of a Urim and Thummim in, in sort of the same way. And so these stones not only give off glory and light, but they become oracles of hidden knowledge. And so we have some related concepts here that I, I kind of want to touch on as well. And uh, that is uh, when uh, DNC section 130 verse 9 is talking about how the earth is going to be a great Urim and Thummim. That is something that indicates that the presence of God will be there. It's the place where angels reside. It's a globe like a uh, sea of glass and fire is described in various places in the book of Revelation and in other scriptures. And so essentially it's like this big crystal ball that can be looked into by those who dwell in the celestial kingdom and through that means you can see kingdoms of lower order we're talking terrestrial kingdoms we're talking about the telestial kingdom and the various worlds and orders and many mansions that exist in those uh, lower kingdoms that are below the celestial kingdom now brigham young said that this with regard to uh, this earth he said when you wish to know anything you can look in this earth and see all the eternities of God, close quote. And so that's his description of uh, what is being described in DNC 130 verse 9. And so we have to understand that this is kind of the purpose of uh, this earth and all other celestialized worlds. And so when we talk about celestial worlds, we're essentially talking about worlds that from the beginning were designated to be celestial worlds capable of living celestial law. And they fill the measure of their celestial creation by living celestial law. And these celestial worlds that I'm referring to are those worlds that support mortal inhabitants. So this earth, because we live on it as uh, mortal human beings and have the ability, if we are worthy, to inherit this earth, it has to be a celestial earth because it's designated to become 
a celestial kingdom, a world of the celestial kingdom. That's not true of other worlds that have been created to accommodate those people who will not qualify themselves to live in the celestial kingdom. So we're talking about people on this earth they live here, they have the capacity to live celestial law, but they fall short of it. And when it comes time for the resurrection and uh, the celestialization of this earth, they're going to get booted off. We don't break down this earth into uh, one part of it is celestial, one part is terrestrial, another part is telestial. And since this is your world, you can hang here even if you don't qualify for the celestial kingdom. And so essentially there had to be other worlds created where um, the terrestrial and telestial people can go if they fail to qualify themselves by living celestial law. These are not celestial worlds. They've been created, but they're uninhabited until they eventually die and are resurrected to the glory that uh, supports or is based on the law that they uh, were created and they feel the measure of that creation. And so when we're talking about celestial worlds that then can support human life and ultimately become celestialized, all of these types of worlds fall into this same mold that they will then become like great Urim and Thummims uh, as described in section 130. And so in go looking into the world, you can see all things manifest past, present, and future, which are continually before the Lord. Now, we also learn that the place where God dwells and resides is also a great Urim and Thummim, and that's in his generation. And so the earth in its sanctified and immortal state is made like unto crystal so that all of us have the ability to see these things of inferior kingdoms and uh, including anything below the celestialized earth. Now contrast that with the white stone that is given to exalted saints only. So now we have to keep in mind here that uh, in the celestial kingdom there are various degrees of glory three in fact specifically and uh, we're going to as we kind of work our way through this a little bit you have to understand that even though some people may qualify for the celestial kingdom if they don't qualify for exaltation within the celestial kingdom they're not going to get the white stone so the white stone that gives you the ability to see kingdoms of higher order are going to be limited to those saints who qualify for exaltation. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But let's first talk about this concept about how there are higher orders of kingdoms that can be made known through this white stone that exalted people will receive. So an illustration of, the, uh, of a higher kingdom is God's celestial residence. So before this earth was created, God existed on a celestial world uh, in his generation. And that would be a kingdom that is of a higher order. It's also part of the celestial kingdom. So there's not celestial kingdoms above celestial kingdoms, but there are worlds above worlds speaking in terms of their multi-generational aspect of kingdom. So God's celestial residence is part of the celestial kingdom, but it is higher in the sense that it precedes us. And uh, as our world becomes glorified and gets added to the celestial kingdom, it then adds to the glory of the whole. 
but that world will always exist as a kingdom that is above ours because it precedes ours in multi-generational terms. And so this we learn a little bit about as we read in Doctrine and Covenants section 76 verses 7 through 8, which states, quote, And to them will I reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom, from days of old and for ages to come will I make known unto them who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end, the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom. Yea, even the wonders of eternity shall they know, and things to come will I show them, even the things of many generations." Close quote. And so again, here we have this concept that uh, our Heavenly Father has his kingdom. It has already been perfected and it exists. And if you have a white stone, you have the ability not only to see everything that can be known about this earth and uh, all things associated with it, you can see all things associated with God's kingdom and the kingdom above his, and above his, for many generations, as it uh, talks about in these verses. Now, let me talk a little bit more about this concept of distinguishing between saints who are exalted in the celestial kingdom and saints who are unexalted uh, saints in the celestial kingdom. We learn in Doctrine and Covenants section 131, verses 1 and 2, it says, quote, In the celestial glory... There are three heavens or degrees, and in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Close quote. You'll notice in this verse that the Lord speaks in terms of a man entering into this high order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Now, this is essentially a manner of speech it's a little bit uh, archaic um, because today um, where we try and be all inclusive in our descriptions, including men and women, it would say essentially that uh, there are three heavens or degrees and in order to attain the highest, a man and woman must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. That's essentially celestial marriage. It is the sealing ordinance in the temple. And so only those who receive the sealing ordinance in the temple and are then worthy of their covenants are entitled to enter into the highest degree of celestial glory. If you don't uh, have the sealing ordinance by the time of the resurrection, then um, you can go into the celestial kingdom. If you've otherwise lived celestial law, you've been baptized and you kept your baptismal covenants, you can enter as unexalted saints in the celestial kingdom. Now, I, I always have to kind of mention this caveat because there are those who um, are concerned because they haven't been married in the temple for reasons beyond their own control. And so uh, it's not like they've made a conscious choice not to be sealed in the temple and they are otherwise worthy to enter the temple. Please satisfy yourselves uh, that uh, the Lord will make sure that you get your ordinances. No one is going to be denied exaltation because of a lack of opportunity, just as no one is denied the opportunity to hear the gospel and to be able to participate in the baptismal ordinance. So that we always have to kind of mention that because uh, I know it is 
challenging for some who want to uh, uh, be uh, married in uh, the temple and to be sealed and haven't gotten there yet and you get concerned before the resurrection happens uh, all of these kinds of things are going to be taken care of and so now we have this distinction between exalted saints and unexalted saints and what we now learn is that unexalted saints in the celestial kingdom will have the ability to see kingdoms beneath the celestial kingdom by looking into the earth itself, um, which is a great Urim and Thummim. Exalted saints, on the other hand, can look into the earth and see the lower things, but they also then receive the white stone to see these higher kingdoms. And this personal Urim and Thummim is like a... Uh, a seer stone to them. It's it's in reality, it's the ultimate iPhone. <laughs> I mean, if you want to encourage your teenagers to go to the temple and to be sealed, tell them, hey, if you think your iPhone or your Samsung or whatever, your Android, whatever it is, if you think is as good, uh, you don't want to miss out on the ultimate iPhone, which is the white stone that you'll get if you're exalted. So don't mess your life up. Make sure you get to the temple. But the, the idea is that, uh, obviously, if you have the ability to see things past, present, and future, and everything is continually before you, um, and you can see lower kingdoms, and you can see higher kingdoms, this is, this is true omniscience. This is what it means for God to be omniscient, and it is consistent with the promise of Godhead that is promised in the Doctrine and Covenants to those who receive the sealing ordinance and are worthy of their covenants. It says this in Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, 20 through 21, quote, Then shall they be gods, because they have no end. Therefore shall they be from everlasting to everlasting, because they continue. Then shall they be above all, because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods, because they have all power, and the angels are subject unto them. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye abide my law, ye cannot attain to this glory. Close quote. That again is what uh, is given to us by way of description of those who enter the sealing ordinance or the uh, this highest level uh, or degree of the Melchizedek priesthood, which we refer to as the patriarchal order. So let's uh, now go back in time and look at some of the ancient foreshadows that existed with regard to what we've been discussing as far as the Urim and Thummim. As I mentioned, the, uh, the high priest in ancient Israel foreshadowed exalted people that receive a personal Urim and Thummim. And this comes into play on the Day of Atonement when the high priest entered the Holy of Holy to make intercession on behalf of the Israelite nation. So you'll, you'll know, of course, we've talked about it before, but the Holy of Holies is called the Oracle. It is a place of revelation. The dimensions of the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Solomon uh, and again in the uh, Temple of Zerubbabel and uh, the Temple of Herod was a perfect cube shape. It was 20 by 20 by 20 cubits in the temples. And so this then becomes 
a symbol of perfection and just, oh, by the way, in Revelation 21, when John is describing uh, what the celestial earth is going to be like, he describes it as these two celestial cities that are also described as a perfect cube shape, except the difference is he describes them as these cube shapes that would be 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. And so, uh, again, we get the idea of uh, the perfection that is associated with it. And, and the same notion is that the earth will then become this uh, massive uh, kind of oracle that you can look into it and see uh, lesser kingdoms. Now, the Holy of Holies was separated from the holy place with a double veil that was elaborately embroidered. And I know we oftentimes speak about the veil of the temple. Well, it turns out it's actually two veils. So you had an outer veil where the north end, now the temples always faced east, of course, the, the doors of the temple anciently always faced east. And so uh, when you would walk in to the Holy of Holies, you would see in front of you the veil of the temple, which turns out, as I mentioned, it's actually two veils. So the the outer veil or the veil that you would actually see was open at the north end, what would be on the right side. Um, and so you could, without actually touching the veil or doing anything, you, you go through the opening on the north end, you kind of walk down between the two veils, uh, and the, the second veil would then be open on the south end of it, and you could enter the Holy of Holies. And so without ever touching it and without exposing the Holy of Holies, you could gain access into the Holy of Holies, which the high priest did. Uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And uh, just as another little aside, um, the, the Holy of Holies, of course, up until the time of about 587 BC, contained the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took the Jews captive into Babylon, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was then lost. It's assumed it probably was taken uh, with the other vessels of the temple into uh, Babylon. But when the Jews returned from Babylon 70 years later, um, it never came back. Now, we do know, <laughs> we do know that uh, Dr. Jones found it in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And remember, the, the Germans were trying to get their hands on it, and they, they eventually found the... Uh, the Lost Ark of the Covenant, but uh, then you'll recall that at the end of the movie, uh, it was lost again in some government warehouse. So I guess we have to assume that today, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is in some government warehouse someplace. <laughs> you realize I'm joking, of course. Okay, yeah, right. Okay, so at any rate, um, that's what we know. But the, the point I was going to make is, when they rebuilt the temple, after the Babylonian captivity, it was known as the Temple of Zerubbabel, who was the, the governor uh, at the time the Jews returned from uh, Babylon. They didn't have the Ark of the Covenant, and so when they built the Holy of Holies, basically they uh, had a large rock, the Dome of the Rock, because the, these temples were all located in the same place, and you had the, the, the Dome of the Rock located in the uh, place where the Holy of Holies was. And when the high priest would go in on the uh, Day of Atonement, he would then sprinkle the blood on this stone rather than in the place of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. So as the uh, 
high priest enters the uh, Holy of Holies, he would be wearing particular clothing that included the Urim and Thummim in his breastplate. So his clothing basically consisted of, uh, and, and there are some differences here because not everybody interprets the description of the clothing from the book of Exodus in the same way. But my understanding and kind of my read of what his clothing consisted of is he would, of course, have his white linen robe. And then above that, he wore what is known as the ephod. And this was a blue apron that uh, was a, a high apron. It wasn't just an apron that you kind of wrap around your waist, um, but uh, it went up over the shoulders and, and down kind of low when that was the, the, the ephod. And then over the top of the ephod was the breastplate um, located kind of right here in the on the chest of the uh, high priest. And it, as I mentioned, was studded with these 12 stones that have uh, the names of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel, which essentially means he's going into the Holy of Holies. And when he does so, he's taking with him the 12 tribes because he's there to make intercession on their behalf. And so even though they kind of stand silently outside waiting for the intercession to occur uh, in uh, symbolic terms, they are with him in the Holy of Holies. Now, the Urim and Thummim was attached to the breastplate, and it's described in Exodus chapter 28, verse 30, where it says, quote, And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually, close quote. And you'll notice in this verse how it talks about uh, the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart. It's not like it's one single stone, because here it's referred to in, uh, plural in plurality. You have these two stones, essentially, that are used for communicating with God, and the, they were clear and white. Uh, they were a medium of communion with Jehovah. Some say that the ineffable name of Jehovah or Yahweh was the name that was inscribed on the Urim and Thummim. And so some even equate the ephod itself with the Urim and Thummim. And so, again, as I mentioned, it's no real clear indication of how these things work. But I think the way I have described it is consistent with uh, what I best understand to be uh, contained in the uh, uh, book of Exodus, as well as the, the, the modern revelation that we have. Now, the words Urim and Thummim are, the, are a transliteration of two Hebrew words, as I mentioned before. They mean lights and wholeness or perfections, uh, the shining and the perfect. Notice how both words end with I-M. You have Urim ending in I-M, and you also have Thummim ending in I-M. Anytime you see these two letters at the end of a Hebrew word, it is uh, identifying the Hebrew masculine plural suffix. And so it's kind of like um, in the English language, if you add an S to the end of a word, it then becomes plural. And in uh, Hebrew, if you add I-M, that makes the word plural. And so you can, and an illustration of this would be the name of God. Uh, the name of God is El, uh, and that's singular, but we often refer to him as Elohim 
in the plural because the reality of it is the Elohim is a collection of gods, okay? And so this kind of comes back to the idea of a plurality of gods, all who share and share alike in the kingdoms uh, through the uh, law of consecration. And so that's why even though he is an individual, a single person with a body of flesh and bone and glorified, uh, he is part of a larger collective. And so we refer to him as Elohim as though we were plural. And uh, some people have other explanations for the, the meaning of the Urim and Thummim. Um, and so some say that it comes from the root word or followed by a hyphen and then an M, which means light. And so in e either case, it is this uh, idea or the concept of some type of shining stone and a symbol of uh, God's presence. And so we learn from Exodus that it was also used in the priestly function of making judgments, and Aaron wore it over his heart. Josephus, who was the Jewish historian, that lived in the time of Christ states that the stones shone whenever the Shekinah or the Lord's presence was present at time and this would occur at times of sacrifice or when the army was proceeding into battle the Lord would go with them and the uh, the Urim and Thummim that was part of the breastplate of the high priest would actually shine and so looking now about the uh, the physical Urim and Thummim themselves there were two different ones used on the separate continents, although some people think that uh, the set that was had by Aaron was eventually handed down and the Jaredites had it and then it uh, went with Lehi and his colony and ended up on the American continent. And there's, there's some um, plausibility to that because um, you know, Lehi testified to the Jews that they were going to be destroyed in 600 BC, and that eventually happened 13 years later in 587 BC when Nebuchadnezzar came in and wiped them all out. The Ark of the Covenant was lost, as I mentioned, and uh, so the thought would be that uh, the Urim and Thummim were either lost to uh, to Nebuchadnezzar along with the other temple vessels, or alternatively. Lehi could have taken them with him, and that's how we ended up having a set uh, of uh, the Urim and Thummim on the American continent. The only problem with that particular logic is that we know that the Jaredites had the Urim and Thummim uh, when they existed on the American continent. Well, guess what? They left the Amer they left uh, the eastern uh, continent um, in about 2200 BC. And so if uh, they, they took the Urim and Thummim uh, with them, then it means that the, uh, the Urim and Thummim would have been lost long before 587 BC, but there's no indication that that was the case. And the scriptures tend to indicate that the Jews did have them for a longer period of time. And so essentially what we have is the Lord created the, uh, the Urim and Thummim for communication uh, with the high priest on the Eastern Hemisphere. Um, and the Nephites then had a second and separate set given to them on the American continent. Now the historical uses of the Urim and Thummim uh, 
both anciently and modern, I'd have to say, was we know that on the American continent, Mosiah possessed a Urim and Thummim and was therefore called a seer. And so a seer is one who sees with spiritual eyes. He's an interpreter or clarifier of eternal truth. Uh, he has the ability to foresee the future from the past and the present. And uh, when the Book of Mormon describes the uh, these Urim and Thummim, he describes them as seer stones or interpreters that are used for revelation and translating ancient records. It was essentially an instrument prepared by God through which revelation could be received. We know that Abraham had one on the Eastern continent. Uh, and again, uh, Abraham came long after the Jaredites, and yet he had a Urim and Thummim, and he learned about the universe, things like Kolob, and uh, all of these things that are described in uh, um, the book of Abraham, chapter 3. Um, we also know that uh, Joseph Smith used a Urim and Thummim, the one that was on the American continent, to uh, translate the Book of Mormon. And I'll get into that in a little bit more detail in just a moment. So just kind of tracking what happened with things. Um, we, we know that Mosiah had the Urim and Thummim. He gave it to Alma. Alma gave it to Helaman, and it was passed down until eventually it ended up in the hands of Moroni, who sealed it up with his writings as the last writer uh, on the uh, gold plates. And this is the one that was then received by Joseph Smith. And so it had been around for a long time because it was had by the, uh, the brother of Jared uh, by the time they were on the American continent. All of this is kind of confirmed in Joseph Smith history, chapter 1, verse 52, which states, quote, having removed the earth, I obtained a lever which I got fixed under the edge of the stone and with a little exertion raised it up. I looked in and there indeed did I behold the plates, the Urim and Thummim and the breastplate as stated by the messenger." Close quote. Again, this is Joseph Smith describing how Moroni had told him the location where he would find the gold plates. And Moroni obviously told him that he would also find the Urim and Thummim and the breastplate. And so when he got there, he, he recognized it, he opens it up, and voila, there it is, exactly as uh, Moroni told him it would be. Now, let's talk about what the Urim and Thummim actually looks like, uh, as described by various people who had uh, seen it in the time of Joseph Smith. And so, essentially, it's described as these two transparent stones that were set in the rim of a bow. Now, this would be slightly different, probably, than what the high priest had in ancient Israel because his Urim and Thummim appears to have been in some fashion attached to his breastplate. Um, and whether the, the stones could be brought up to his eyes so that he can then kind of look through them in a way that we would look through glasses, we don't have any information. But uh, uh, I don't know that they necessarily have to work in exactly the same way. But these two transparent stones that are set in the rim of a bow essentially resemble a pair of glasses or spectacles, except they're larger. Uh, now, Jan would refer to these as spectaculars. <laughs> so she gets her reading glasses, uh, which she refers to as spectaculars. And I, I emphasize uh, spectaculars plurally 
because I'm not mentioning that she has one spectacular for each eye. We have multiple copies of her reading glasses around the house because when one gets lost, you can always go and go in different places trying to uh, locate them. So uh, uh, the only thing I can say about that is I guess uh, her uh, misplacing of her spectaculars is something that she comes by honestly because I'm told that her sister Lori has hundreds of sunglasses that she has for the same reason. <laughs> you know, I'm going to really, really catch it when her family listens to this podcast. <laughs> I'll never live it down. But I'm going to retract the statement slightly. I don't know that she has hundreds of pairs of sunglasses. I'm going to take the S off the end of hundred. <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. But at any rate, so the uh, the uh, large uh, transparent stones, not large, but the two transparent stones were then fastened to a, bless, a breastplate. Um, this is described um, by uh, Lucy Mack Smith, who was Joseph's mother, and she seems to have had firsthand information about what this looked like and must have seen it at some point in time. She described the Urim and Thummim as two smooth, three-colored diamonds set in glass, and the glasses were set in silver bows like spectacles, the breastplate was concave on one side and convex on the other. So the idea is you get it, it's up here on your breast and it kind of just folds around your breast in this fashion a little bit. Um, it, she also mentioned that the, the breastplate essentially kind of went from the neck down to the center of the stomach. So it wasn't this narrow kind of breastplate, but fairly large breastplate. That's kind of some of the ways in which she has described it. Now, David Whitmer, who was one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, also saw the Urim and Thummim, which he also compared to a pair of glasses. And he actually published his account of his description of the Urim and Thummim in the Kansas City Journal in June of 1881. And he there described it as this bow that was between two stones um, that was kind of heavy and uh, longer. And uh, he said that when Joseph Smith um, was using the Urim and Thummim, he did not see the plates themselves as he made the translation. What he, what he would do is he would hold the Urim and Thummim to his eyes. He would then cover his face with a hat to kind of exclude all the light. And so his uh, eyes then beheld this kind of parchment that had characters from the plates. And then below that was a translation of the Reformed Egyptian that was translated into English. So that was kind of David Whitmer's little bit of a description about uh, the Urim and Thummim and how it actually operated. We have one other first-hand account from uh, William Smith, who was Joseph's brother. He also said, described them as these spectacles, and the, the spectacles were actually attached to a breastplate by a rod. And the idea is, is that uh, when the spectacles were attached to the rod, to the breastplate, so you got the breastplate kind of sitting on your, your chest, a rod kind of came out and held it, so that the glasses could be held in place without Joseph Smith actually holding on to the glasses themselves. So he could flip the pages of the gold plates, having his hands free while still being able to look through 
the Urim and Thummim. Uh, William also said that the glasses were actually too large to be squarely like my glasses are in front of both of my eyes. They were kind of larger, so uh, Joseph really could only look through one stone at a time because they were too large to fit both of his eyes. And uh, he also described that this rod, it's not like it came out in the center of it. It's almost like it came from one side uh, at the outer shoulder of the breastplate and, uh, and was attached to it so that you could actually, when it was removed, it kind of sounds like it almost fell into some kind of a little pocket or place where it was kept when it was not in use. And so that's the best that we can get by way of description of what the uh, Urim and Thummim looked like. And uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the theoretical uses of it, some people have uh, various theories about how it actually operated. Uh, David Whitmer kind of seems to give the best description uh, that he actually published about this concept that uh, he sees uh, not the plates themselves, but the characters from the plates in his view and below it was a translation in English, which would largely explain how it was possible for Joseph Smith to translate the Book of Mormon in such a short period of time. And, you know, basically as fast as Oliver Cowdery could write it down, Joseph's just sitting there reading the words if, if uh, David Whitmer's account is correct. But there are others that have these other theories that uh, Joseph Smith... Um, saw words or sentences as he translated that makes him this transmitter or a scrivener almost more than an actual translator and that's kind of the uh what david whitmer <clears throat> is describing others say they have a sense that the uh, uh and thummim enhanced joseph's capacity to understand uh, but he was kind of required to transform these ideas into the English that eventually ends up in uh, the Book of Mormon. It also, there's a theory that Joseph sometimes saw words such as people and uh, places, but uh, other than that, it was basically he was receiving a revelatory kind of thing that put thoughts that he would then vocalize and verbalize to his scribe Oliver. Um, now, it's pretty certain uh, that uh, some type of revelatory process was involved. In other words, it wasn't purely mechanical, where he didn't have to put any exertion of effort into it, and no faith required. This was a divine instrument, um, but uh, we learn from Oliver's experience, where he also attempted to translate through the uh, Urim and Thummim, and he ultimately failed. And this is recorded in uh, section six of the uh, Doctrine and Covenants. And so there is something that was a, a faith-filled process that was involved in the process. And so ultimately the uh, Urim and Thummim, for whatever else we might say about it, it was only an aid in the translation it wasn't the thing that did all the work itself and and joseph just had to read something and, and verbalize it and that's why you have these different thoughts because of oliver's experience we know that several revelations came through the urim and thummim in addition to joseph smith's use of this instrument uh to do the re um 
translation of the Book of Mormon. And so you've got a total of eight sections for sections 3, 6, and 7, 10 and 11, and 14 through 17 were all received through the Urim and Thummim. And uh, with regard to the Book of Abraham, uh, Joseph Smith uh, purchased this from Michael Chandler in uh, July of 1835, and Joseph Smith then translated in various intervals between 1835 and March of 1842. Um, some of it may have been uh, translated through the uh, Urim and Thummim, or uh, perhaps the seer stone that I'm going to describe here in a moment. Um, but uh, we don't know for sure. Uh, the other question is whether the Urim and Thummim was used when Joseph Smith did his uh, inspired revisions to the Bible, which we refer to as the Joseph Smith translation. We don't have any evidence that he used the Urim and Thummim for that uh, process. And Elder Orson Pratt said specifically that it was not used for that purpose. So that's some of the uses and uh, what we know about Joseph's use of the Urim and Thummim. We also know that uh, at the time that Joseph Smith completed his translation of the Book of Mormon, the Urim and Thummim was uh, returned to Moroni. We have no record of the prophet having it after the organization of the church. And we also <clears throat> learned that over time, Joseph Smith's spiritual gifts increased and were enhanced to the point that essentially having the Urim and Thummim was no longer something that he required in order to fulfill his prophetic calling. And so as he grew in spiritual power, he became less and less dependent on the uh, Urim and Thummim. And uh, Professor Cowan, a professor of uh, religious education at BYU, made the observation that half of the revelations that Joseph received uh, before he received the Melchizedek priesthood were done uh, via the Urim and Thummim. After the Melchizedek priesthood was uh, bestowed and conferred on Joseph and Oliver, then Joseph essentially no longer used the device. And, and that would make some sense because he had the higher gifts of the spirit connected with the Melchizedek priesthood, which would obviate the need for having something like the uh, Urim and Thummim. Um, we know that uh, when Abraham had the Urim and Thummim, just as kind of an aside, he actually, um, you know, saw the, the, the worlds without end, and these are described in uh, Abraham chapter 3. And so he, through the Urim and Thummim, had a clearer vision of worlds at greater distance than what we have with our precision instruments today and the telescopes that we have. And so uh, they far exceed the most advanced radio, radar, radio, television, telescope, whatever we might have. Uh, they pale in comparison to the type of uh, visions that can come through the uh, Urim and Thummim. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that there's something uh, dis that we have to distinguish from the Urim and Thummim, and that's the seer stone that was also possessed by Joseph Smith. Now, the seer stone was essentially a chocolate-colored, somewhat egg-shaped stone, although slightly more flat than, uh, than an egg. There are some conflicting stories about the origin 
of the uh, sear stone, but I think probably the account that uh, is most consistent and seems to have the most credibility is that Joseph found the sear stone sometime before September of 1827 when he received the golden plates and the Urim and Thummim. So he actually had the seer stone before he had the Urim and Thummim. And Willard Chase, uh, in his diary or in his writing, said that Joseph Smith found the stone in 1822 while digging a well on the property of Willard Chase. And there were others who give uh, not necessarily eyewitness accounts, but accounts that uh, are pretty close in time to uh, Willard Chase's account that have much the same content without necessarily the same detail. And so what uh, when Joseph found the stone, uh, he learned that he could discern wondrous things and he carried it with him for the rest of his life and used it for revelatory purposes. Uh, although we don't think that he used it in the translation of the Book of Mormon and would not need to because, of course, he had the Urim and Thummim. Now, the seer stone, unlike the Urim and Thummim that's given back to Moroni, uh, the seer stone is still in the possession of the church today. And so the, the history of the stone is Joseph had given the seer stone to Oliver Cowdery, who is, of course, one of the three witnesses. And after Oliver's death in 1848, uh, Phineas Young, who was the brother of Brigham Young, visited Oliver Cowdery's widow in Missouri, and she gave the stone to Phineas Young. Phineas then returned to uh, the Salt Lake Valley and gave the stone to his brother, President Brigham Young, and the stone has remained in the possession of the church since that time. And so that's one of the historical artifacts that is possessed by the church. I don't know that it's openly displayed, but, uh, but they have it certainly. So we kind of come to the conclusion of our discussion about this white stone. I've spent a lot of time talking about the uh, Urim and Thummim and the steer stone because these are earthly objects that uh, we as human beings uh, have knowledge of that tend to tell us something or teach us about this white stone that exalted people will eventually receive uh, after their resurrection and their celestialization and when they become permanent residents as exalted saints um, on this earth. Uh, overcomers, those who are exalted peepers, people, are those who are promised that they will receive the white stone. It is a symbol of omniscience and godhood. And so these are the promises associated with the uh, the book of Revelation. And we've mentioned that there are 12 of them. And this is one of those 12 that say, essentially, if you're an overcomer, if you're an exalted, you're going to get one of these stones. And it becomes a symbol of godhood and your symbol of uh, having omniscience just as God has. Now next week um, when we have our podcast we'll be talking about the new name that is uh, written on that white stone and it'll kind of conclude our discussion not only of uh, Revelation 2.17 but the connection between the stone and the name itself which again when we get there scenes to coming attractions here this is the trailer um, that white that name is going to be something associated with your temple covenants and uh, it is going to be a key word uh, which tends to confirm what I've 
been telling you today with reference to the white stone being received only by people who qualify for exaltation people who go to the temple and receive their endowment and receive the key word which is the new name uh, then qualify themselves as they keep their covenants to become exalted in the celestial kingdom so it's another one of those indicias that in order to receive a white stone you have to qualify for exaltation so the thing that you tell your kids is uh, make sure you live to receive the uh, temple ordinances because uh, you're going to miss out on the greatest iphone in history if you don't <laughs> okay so thanks for listening uh thanks for subscribing sharing uh thanks to uh jenna for all the technical stuff hey i'll see you next time